The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder. If you're able, remain standing. We're going to read two verses of Scripture. One, you ought to know pretty quickly, John 3.16. Would you turn to John 3.16 with me? Well, look with me in John 3.16. As we look at this second affirmation of the Apostles' Creed, look with me uh, to two passages of Scripture. John 3.16, you got it? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Then if you go to the next book of your Bible, Acts, and if you'll slip over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Peter is preaching the gospel. And in the middle of it, to this, this Jewish congregation that has assembled at the feast day, and he comes forth on Pentecost Day to proclaim the gospel, he says this clarion statement to them. Look at Acts 2.36. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Grass withers, the flower fades, God's word abides forever. By his grace and mercy, may his word be preached for you. Please be seated. If perchance, if perchance you were... uh, Living in the 16th, 17th, 18th century after the Reformation. And you were aware of what church buildings looked like and how they were put together before the Reformation. Then you went into a church building after the Reformation, a church that was serious about the Word of God, serious about worship, serious about fulfilling the Great Commission, serious about evangelism and discipleship and teaching the whole counsel of God so that God's people might be salt of the earth and light to the world. If you went into such a church, uh, you would probably uh, have two observations. One observation. What happened to the statues and the icons? They're all gone. Uh, The icons and the statues have been replaced, and in its place, instead of human imagination, is divine revelation. The Word of God is paramount. Read it, confess it, sing it, pray it, preach it. The second thing that you would see is from that Word, a distillation of truth from that Word, you would also be uh, confronted with something else that you would observe, and that's likely... Not in every case, but in many cases, a church that was committed to the, the truth and the reclamation of truth from the Reformation, they not only would have cleansed the sanctuary of any temptations to idolatry and making of graven images, but they, and, and lifted up 
the word, but they would have from the word put up in front of you. Now, remember, books were hard to come by and they were expensive. And so to help you, um, unfortunately, they didn't have projection screens and projectors, but they had murals. And likely you would have seen three on either side of the pulpit. One would have been the law of God. The law of God that would have been given the great commandment of the Lord. You shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul and mind and your neighbors yourself by. And then those ten statements of ethical truth would be given and it would be put in front of you because it was crucial for worship and evangelism and discipleship. It was absolutely essential to understand it. And because it was so essential and because it was there, it would do three things. One, it would tell you you're a sinner and you can't save yourself and send you to Jesus, who the lawgiver became the law keeper and died on the cross for lawbreakers that we might have the blessings of eternal life through his perfect obedience. And not only would the law be used for that, but secondly, the law would be used to point you to how to live for Christ because you love him. Not how to live to be loved by him, but how to live for him who has loved you. Because if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And the third use of it would, as it is embraced and loved, it would restrain sin in society. Wouldn't redeem people necessarily, but it would restrain sin in society as that law is lived and loved by God's people. So it would be part of an instrument for evangelism and discipleship. Secondly, up there would have been the Lord's Prayer. Uh, uh, which probably more aptly is rightly said, the disciples' prayer. Our Father, Jesus teaches us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Even as we forgive our debtors, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And that would be a discipleship tool to teach us how to pray. And then the third thing, not only do we speak to God, but God has spoken to us in a distillation of essential truth. Now, uh, all of the essential truths of Christianity are not in the Apostles' Creed. But while you may believe more that you will believe more than what's in the Apostles' Creed, you won't believe any less. So they would put that um, that creed up that now has stood us stead for eighteen hundred years. Not as a comprehensive, but as a statement of essentials that are foundational to the work of discipleship in the life of a believer. Those three murals, law of God, prayer of God and the Apostles Creed would have been up there. Now, if you uh, maybe it was in the sermon and you got a little distracted or a little bored. I know that never happens here. But if perchance that did happen and you didn't have a, you know, a bulletin to start coloring in the zeros or drawing on or something like that, you might have wandered off from the pulpit and looked at that Apostles' Creed. And as you began to reflect on it, well, maybe you didn't do it during the sermon. Maybe you got early to worship to prepare your heart and you were looking at it as part of your preparation, you might have observed something. Let me give you some things you might have observed. You might have observed, wow, this distinguishes Christianity from pantheism, polytheism. It even distinguishes Christianity from cultic Christianity, cults of Christianity. Or even monotheistic religions like Islam and Judaism. 
It's Trinitarian. I believe in God the Father. I believe in God the Son. I believe in God the Holy Spirit. One God being three persons. And you might be sitting looking at that and thinking your way through it. And then a second thing would strike you. One little preposition. You know, Christianity is all about the prepositions. You would see, I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Not about. In. As a personal, trusting, committed, intentional relationship between me and the God of glory by His grace. A third thing that you might have thought of is the apostrophe. You're just sitting there and you say, my goodness, that apostrophe is really impressing me. Apostrophes are impressive, you know. Because you'll notice that the apostrophe is not in front of the S, but behind the S. Now, if it was in front of the S, then that would have been a claim that this creed came from the apostles themselves. It would have been an apostolic ownership. But no, the apostrophe is after the S, revealing the fact it wasn't the apostles that wrote it, but those who wrote it wrote what the apostles had taught. It is a distillation of the New Testament truths of Christianity that reveal the prophet, the prophecies, the symbols, the types, the shadows. Everything in the Old Testament has found its fulfillment in the promised one, Jesus Christ. And the apostles would have taught it. That meant that you ought to, if this creed... Now remember, Bible creeds, they're true. But creeds that have been made by men of truth from the Bible are only so good as they are faithful to the Bible. And this is saying not only are we faithful to the Bible, but we're faithful very specific to what the apostles wrote in the Bible. So go check us out. And so just so you know... Every Sunday as I'm preparing for these sermons, my first thing that I do is go to every text, not every, almost every text I can find, that undergirds, defines, and distills this affirmation that we're looking at. So where would you have gone for this morning, this second affirmation of faith? First four Sundays, we took a look at, I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. Where do you go there? Well, it's obvious where I went, isn't it? We just read it. John 3.16. I believe in Jesus Christ, his what? Come on, folks. You can do better than that. This is, this, listen, this is my third one. Y'all got to help me out here a little bit. I believe in what? His what? Uh, that he is his what, son? I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. That's quite a claim to make. Well, how can that be made? If it's not biblical, well, guess what? It's biblical. And, and guess what? Uh, and so, and then, um, not only that, he is, he is the Christ, the Savior. How about, and his name is what? Jesus. Now that didn't happen because, you know, uh, his name is Jesus. Now you can find Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, right? You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Or you, um, or you go to Luke 2.11. For born unto you this day in the city of David is a Savior who is Christ 
the Lord. Or you go to the passage I shared for the, uh, for the gospel pardon this morning when we uh, prepared for worship. Romans 10, 9. If we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Or the Acts 2.36. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has made Lord and Savior. So throughout the scriptures, the question is not, is what we're confessing today biblical? It is. But what in the world are we actually confessing? I just ask, I pray God all the time that those of you who don't yet know him will be drawn to him today. And those of you who do know him, there's no way the next time we do the Apostles' Creed in worship, you can mumble through this. <laughs> you just can't. You've got to say it. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. So you would, you would note, can I give you something else you might note? You might not only note the Trinitarian, the prepositions in that you believe in, you might only, not only note that this, um, this creed where the apostrophe is and faithful to God's word, but you might have noted something else as you're gazing. There is a dis, there seems to be, let me change my words, there seems to be a disproportionate amount of content given to Jesus in light of the equality of the doctrine of the Trinity. I mean, what does it say about God the Father? A sentence. I believe in God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. Is there more that could be said? Yep. But that's all that's said in this essential uh, doctrine, in this essential statement, this essential creed. Holy Spirit, even a simpler sentence. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Now, I start listing a lot of the blessings of the Holy Spirit after that. But it's a simple sentence. I believe in the Holy Spirit. But Jesus, <laughs> I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate was crucified, dead and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. Wow. That's a lot of, a lot of space. There seems to be a disproportionate amount of content given to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Let me give you another option. This is the last one. Last observation that you might have had while you were reflecting and looking at that Apostles' Creed. You might have looked and said, why doesn't it have anything that Jesus taught? There's no quotes from him. There's six sermons recorded of Jesus in your Bible. And then all other statements and parables. And There's no quotes from the parables. None of his aphorisms. There's nothing quoted in the Apostles' Creed that he taught. Why not? Because don't, I mean, isn't that a point of contact? Do you, do you go to people, well, I don't believe in Jesus. But he's a great teacher. But it seems like the Apostles' Creed people didn't. And by the way, you had 1,800 years to edit this thing. And they haven't changed the proportionality. Nor did they put anything, quotes from what Jesus taught in there. Well, let me get to that, but let me get to this this way. Let's walk our way through what we just said that we affirm. 
I believe, number one, I believe in Jesus. I believe in Jesus. Now, that's a word that if you had lived in the Old Testament times, the Hebrew word would have been translated Joshua. It literally means Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. God saves. Now, you see how appropriate that is, because who is Jesus? Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to save us. Yeshua. And you didn't get, they didn't get his name. Now, I know when you had a baby, didn't y'all do what we did? You sit down and say, okay, we're going to have a baby. And um, now what are we going to name that baby? Here's the boy name. Here's the girl name. And uh, so we begin to work our way through that. And uh, some of you say, well, did y'all... Um, did y'all not know what gender your baby was going to be? No, we didn't. Uh, they didn't do that kind of thing. And, and honestly, I wouldn't have done it because that would have cut out half of our conversation. What's a boy name? What's a girl name? We get a chance to talk about the whole deal and uh, avoid any argument, hopefully. But Mary and Joseph didn't do that. They didn't sit around and say, well, what do you want to name the first one here? The firstborn? I mean, you know, this is kind of special. And they didn't do any of that. Um, that name came from heaven directly through the angel. Matthew 121, you shall, you shall call his name Jesus. Yeshua. For why? For he shall save. Yahweh is saving his people through his only son, who is now got an adopted father, Joseph, and a mother by the miracle of the conception that we'll study next week. See what we just said. You just distinguish Christianity. Christianity is not a philosophical speculation. It is rooted in time, history. I believe in Jesus of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, sojourned in Egypt, raised in Nazareth, son of a carpenter, at age 30 baptized in obedience to the word of God as he begins his messianic ministry. Goes into the wilderness. Taught, teaches in Galilee. I believe he went to the cross. Died for my sins. The grave was empty on the third day. He's ascended. All that I'm about to confess in this next paragraph, that's Jesus. A true historical person in time and history. And right now, you just distinguished yourself from not only cultural unbelief, but many professing Christian churches who deny the historical Jesus. So when you do it, don't mumble it. I believe in Jesus. This is the real Jesus of Nazareth. The historical person of time, space, and history who bears the name appropriate to why he came. Yeshua, God saves. Secondly, not only is this Jesus, but secondly, it's the Christ. Jesus Christ. Now, I know in this room this probably isn't true, but just in case, just in case, because I've talked with people that actually believe this, Christ is not his last name. It wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ had Jesus Christ. That's not the way this works. This is a title. 
In fact, it's really interesting. When Paul writes about the risen Savior's triumph, he reverses him, calls him Christ Jesus. But this is Jesus Christ. That's his title. Messiah in the Old Testament. It means anointed one. There were God between God and man by God's grace so that we can have a relationship with him. God has established three mediatorial offices, prophet, priest and king. And in the Old Testament, you have multiple prophets as types of the Messiah. You have multiple priests as types of the Messiah. You have multiple kings as types of the Messiah. In fact, in the Old Testament, you have one prophet above all the other prophets that points to Christ. His name is Moses, who says there is a prophet coming greater than me. And you have all of the priests, Levitical priesthoods, but they stand in submission to the eternal priesthood of Melchizedek. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the eternal priesthood, Melchizedek. The greater prophet, the greater priest, and he is also the greater king. The one greater than David. A Messiah is coming who's going to be king. He will come through Israel, through the tribe of Judah, and he will be greater than the line of David and David himself. And that's Jesus. Now, all of those mediatorial offices are in one. The prophet, the priest, the king. Now, that's not the first time. That's the second time. They were all in one in the first Adam. God's word came to Adam. He was to be the prophet. Adam was to be God's mediatorial priest. Through all of his seed. And where Adam went, they went. What Adam did, they did. And Adam was king. Subdue the earth and have dominion. But Adam, in the temptation in a garden, said no to God's call. And yes to taking the lie that he could be like God in his place. Now we got a second Adam. Who's the last Adam? And this Adam is ordained as Messiah. The anointed one. In obedience to numbers 5, 6, 7, and 8, he is baptized in the river Jordan. And as the water is poured upon him, and as the numbers, the book of Numbers says, he is sprinkled clean and comes up out of the river from the heavens, the Father says, This is my son. And he is ordained into his messianic ministry. And where does he go? He goes led and driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. But as prophet, priest, and king, he says no to sin and yes to the glory of the Father and the salvation of his people. And he is faithful in the house of the Lord as the anointed one. He is the Christ, the prophet, the priest, and king. Therefore, 
He can and is the redeemer of his people. Number three, he's not only Jesus, Christ. He is also God's son. So now we just went from the historic Jesus to the eternal son of God. See, because Jesus is the historic Jesus, he's the son of man. In fact, that Jesus loved that title. Jesus used that more than anything else from the book of Daniel. I am the son of man. But he's also the son of God who has become man. 100% God and 100% man. This Jesus, who is the Christ, is the Christ because he doesn't come from Adam. He is another Adam. This is God having come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. And because this is God with us, this is God's son. And God lets you know that. And that Jordan River... As he comes up out of the water, the spirit of God, not water, not oil in the anointing simply, but the spirit of God is poured out upon him. And the father says this, Jesus, this Jesus is the Christ. This Jesus is my beloved Son, the eternal begotten, not made begotten, eternally begotten son of God. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The deity of Christ. Do y'all get the idea that when we do this Apostles Creed, we're not only swimming upstream in the culture, we're swimming upstream in much of professing Christianity that denies the historical Mainline churches, theological liberalism, which is not a subset of Christianity. It's a whole other religion. It denies a historical Jesus. It denies that he is the Christ. It denies that he is God's son. And number four, God's only son. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. By the way, he not only did it there, he did it. And then sent him into the wilderness. There came a time when he's on his way to Jerusalem. But first in the Galilee, he goes up to the Mount of Transfiguration. And there is Moses, the law, pointing to him. There is Elijah, the prophets, pointing to him. And there he is lifted up. And Peter, James, and John, who are about to witness him, humiliated and say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They're being prepared for that moment by hearing from heaven. This is my son, my beloved son. Listen to him. Hear him. This is God's son, God's only son. This is Jesus, son of man, historical reality. Who has come with the title, the Christ, which he is able to accomplish because this isn't another son of Adam that needs his own savior. This is the new Adam, God's son that has come. And this is God's only son, which means he is the only one that can be Jesus Christ, savior. The only one as the only son, eternally begotten. Number five. He is our Lord. Again, 
I don't want to uh, bore you with the original languages, but again, just like Yeshua uh, goes back to the Old Testament Joshua and means Yahweh saves, and and just like Christos goes back to Messiah and it means the Anointed One, and and this is God's Son and God's only Son. But here, this one who is our Lord, there is the careful use of. There's two words for Lord uh, in your uh, in your Bible. This is the careful use of the word Kurios, and Kurios in the New Testament are Kairos. You can say the one. The depends uh, on how, with the, you know, what your accent uh, in those days. But as you would take a look at it, it would be its Old Testament counterpart would have been Adonai, and it's in your Bible in places like Psalm eight. Remember how we sing that? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth! O Lord, Yahweh. Oh, Yahweh, our Adonai, our Lord, our King, whom we surrender to. That's the word that's here. Now, this would have been a very common word because if you lived in that day, you were under Roman rule. And under Roman rule, whether you're a citizen or just one that is being ruled, when, the, when a Roman a magistrate had come in front of you and they would greet you, this is the way they would greet you. Kurios, Kaiser. Caesar is Lord. And this, now listen carefully. This, I believe, is the birthplace of the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles, A-P-O-S-T, A-P-O-S-T-L-E, apostrophe S, would give the first creed. Their answer was, Jesus is Lord at the risk of their life and many would lose it. Jesus is Lord. That now apostolic doctrine gets distilled. So this second affirmation now brings us to, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Adonai, our Lord. That's the one whom we confess. Now, what are the implications of this? Well, I've got a takeaway for you, and I'd like to share it with you. From all the passages I quoted for you that undergird this statement, the ones we read, uh, I would like to, for you to have this as a takeaway. I confess, I know, doesn't fit on the bumper sticker. I'm well aware of that. But with, this is what I want you to reflect on. I want you to think about, please, as you walk away and every time you say this second, this opening statement of the second affirmation of the Apostles' Creed, this is what you're saying. You're saying in the second affirmation of the Apostles' Creed, you are saying that this declares the historical Jesus of Nazareth is the, not a, is the Christ and the only Redeemer of any and all who receive Him as Lord and Savior by faith and repentance. That's what you're saying. You're saying, and obviously, what word is it that stands out? What word is it that is so confrontational in our day and time? It's that word only, isn't it? I want to, can I make this point, and I hope I make it appropriately. I don't want to make it harshly, and I don't mean it harshly. 
And I know why we do this. We talk about, well, have you offered them the gospel? Have you invited people to Christ? And I know why we say that. And I know why we do that. And I know how it's done. And that's exactly what I'm doing now. For any here that don't yet know Jesus, I offer you the Savior. But the fact is, is that when you look in the Bible, here's what Jesus says. Here's what Paul says about what Jesus has said. That God has given us a Redeemer and furnished, and furnished proof by raising him from the dead. He has been gracious in the times of, of man's rebellion and ignorance. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. I know why we say offer. I know why we invite. But sometimes I think we've got to be clearer this is a call. A command. There are, this isn't an option on the menu. This is it. This is who he is and what he's done. Now, is he your Lord? Do you remember Thomas? When he finally saw Jesus risen, what did he say? My God and my Lord. What did John say? I write these things to you that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and Lord. Do you? There's nothing more important for me to ask you than that. Absolutely nothing more important for me to ask you. Why is there a disproportionate amount of material on Christ in the creed? Because he has been sent by the Father, and the Father has so revealed the preeminence and the prominence of the Son as creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And if you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through the one whom the Father has sent. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can come to the Father but through him. That's how you get to the Father, through the one whom the Father gave for you, and that one he gave for you, Jesus of Nazareth was God's only son. And he gave him for you. Not because he needed you. Not at all because he needed you. He didn't need you. Some, um, have you ever had one of your kids ask you, um, Daddy and Mama, before God created everything and before he decided to save people, what was God doing? What was God doing before everything was created? You know, God's eternal. What was he doing? So I'm going to quote Sinclair Ferguson on this one. And I'm saying I'm going to quote Sinclair Ferguson because it's right. But when you first hear it, it doesn't sound like it ought to be right. But it is right. Why is it? What was God doing before there was me and you and this creation? God was having the time of his life. There was nothing lacking. He didn't make us because he needed us. He made us for his glory. And that we could have joy in his glory. 
There was nothing lacking between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Eternity is their life. And there was nothing lacking in it. This is the God who has given his only son. He had no obligation to do it. He had no need to do it. He loves you. My favorite word in John 3.16, God so loved the world. He gave his only Son. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father but through him. When I was uh, married, saved, Christ brought me to himself. Cindy got finished with school. I went back to East Carolina. Didn't, I hadn't been called to the ministry yet. And I was struggling with what I was going to do. And then I really got excited about law. But I wasn't so excited about being a lawyer. I, but I got really excited about law enforcement. And East Carolina had a criminology, a very well-known criminology department. So I changed my major to criminology. When I went back to East Carolina, and my counselor said to me, well, now that you've changed. Now, by the way, I changed back when I went to Covenant, came to my senses, and went back to history and theology. But, uh, but then I went, I, I took his criminology, and the, and the um, counselor said to me, well, you've got to take psychology 101. That's basic. I did not want to take Psychology 101. There's a couple of reasons why I didn't want to take Psychology 101. But one of the reasons I didn't want to take Psychology 101, and when you go to a university of 25, 26,000, 101 classes and Psychology 101 in particular have somewhere between three to 500 students in this massive room. And you don't get taught by a Ph.D. You get taught by a graduate assistant who is trying to impress the Ph.D. that's sitting out there evaluating them. And that's exactly what happened. I don't know which class it was. I just remember sitting there with the hundreds around me. And the graduate assistant said this. There is nothing more arrogant, more manipulative, and more oppressive than religions with truth claims. There are no truth claims. Truth is relative. Now, doesn't that kind of read? Because you live in a society that believes in pluralism, right? Everyone has the right to believe what they want to. Now, what is then stated next? Yes, everyone has the right to believe what they want to. That does not mean what everyone believes is right. But in that class, everything was right. And if you said something is right and something is wrong, you are a manipulative, arrogant oppressor. And then he said, and there's no religion more oppressive than Christianity, which says that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. And you can't be saved unless you come to Jesus. And I'll promise you, you're not going to get out of this class believing that. Well, what do you do if you're me? Number one, I was afraid my mother and daddy might find out I didn't speak up. Number two, I did not want to displease the Lord who's going to confess me before. He's going to confess me. I want to confess him. But I'm not really equipped for this thing. And I was intimidated. 
But finally, my little hand went up and said, I just want you to know I don't agree. Jesus is my Savior and Lord, and I believe that's the biggest decision you'll ever make in your life as to whether he's telling the truth or not. Well, the avalanche fell, and I was the personification of manipulation, oppression, and arrogance. Thankfully, the bell rung. And I went out. And some days I still go to this place. Psychology building's still there. The fence where I was after the classroom is still there. And I stow there. And sometimes when I go back to Greenville to do some in-perspective work with Tom Lamprecht, I'll go to that spot and stand and remember that moment as the hundreds came around me. And I was Mr. Manipulation, Oppression, and Arrogance. Oh, how I prayed for Josh McDowell to ride over the hill, well, a horse or something. But he didn't come. And oh, how I wish years later after I took Van Til, I would have known what Van Til would have taught me, which is to say back to that professor, now wait just a minute, that anyone who makes a truth claim of objective truth, that something's right and something's wrong, anybody that does that is manipulative, oppressive, and arrogant. Now, that's what you want me to believe. Yes, that's what I want you to believe. And anybody that does that is arrogant. Then my next question would have been, if I had already taken Mr. Van Til, was, is that a truth claim? And right now, are you being manipulative, arrogant, and oppressive of me? I just wished I had been trained that, but I wasn't. But I'm going to help train you. <laughs> and then I wished I'd have had R.C. And the way he answered a similar situation. As he told his professor, I'm not saying that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life because he's my way. I'm saying he's the way, the truth, and the life because he said so. And he did so. And he is so. It's not because he's my way. It's because he said so. He did so. And he is so. And because if he's not the way, then there's no way. And we're lost forever. But he is the way. And he made that way under no obligation because he loved you. Now, is he, you can't say our Lord until you first say my Lord and Savior. Is he yours? Then rejoice. The only son Saved you because the Father sent him and the Spirit brought you. And if you haven't, I call you to Him alone who can and will save you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the moments we could be together. Thank you for all that you are and all that you do. And all that we have through your son, your only son, as Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, just speak to hearts now. Encourage your people with the love of Christ. Oh, the deep, deep, unfathomable 
broad, expansive, life-changing love of your only Son, the Christ, our Lord. Lord, we imperfectly follow you, but we do want to obey you. Keep teaching us, keep encouraging us, keep exhorting us, keep convicting us, keep consoling us. Holy Spirit, stay on us. And I praise you that you're in us. If you come seeking today, that's because he sought you. And he sought you that you would seek him. And he says to you, if you seek me, you'll find me. He just showed up for you today. Now, will you come to him who will never cast you out? I pray in Jesus' name, our Savior, Christ alone. Amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.